The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Nice to see so many people here tonight. I often notice this um, in uh, September, you know, we have that deep imprint in our mind to go back to school in September. <laughs> get back on the saddle, so part of that manifests is us coming back to our medita local meditation center or something like that. And I thought it'd be good uh, to take the time to think about things in a really basic way, to look at this practice that the Buddha taught a long time ago as sort of basic human common sense. And if you've done any study, especially the Theravada tradition, it has a very psychological and pragmatic feel to it. So there are elements that sort of might strike us as a, as a little sort of outside of our cultural context. But it's surprisingly contemporary the way that the Buddha taught. It's very functional, very pragmatic. And it really begins, you know, this, any spiritual practice probably, but especially this particular approach, begins with humility. We have to have some sense that um, we're somewhat or maybe a lot confused about this thing called happiness. Like if we really had it down, really understood how to be happy, how to be free in life, how to be a wise, loving person, you know, we wouldn't need to work with the mind or heart in a direct way. So just to kind of appreciate that humility, maybe even bring it up. And in fact, it's a good thing to bring up all the time. It makes us a good learner. When we have an arrogant notion, like we could be suffering, caught up in life, struggling in life, but it's amazing how versatile our mind is. We could still think, we understand how to be happy, you know? And we do that by, by externalizing the problems, like, I'm doing everything right, it's the world that's screwed up, you know, my partner's screwed up or something's screwed up, that's causing my suffering. So just to begin, we have to realize that it's not the world's fault, it's not our partner's fault, but we just have some confusion about this, and that's understandable. Like, how to actually be a happy human being given the conditions of our life. We all have a particular life situation going on, particular genetic and cultural and physical, like all these things coming together, making up our life situation. So what do we do? How do we... How does happiness or ease manifest in each of our life situations? And to acknowledge it's confusing. And it really sets up this uh, first real insight in practice. So as we get interested, as we have some humility, and we start paying attention, the first real insight the Buddha pointed to, which really comes out of his first talk that he gave after his deep insight. He just sort of hung around the area where he had had 
his really good meditation. And then at some point, after a few days, he decided to try to do his best to share. He didn't at first think it would be easy to share what he'd come to understand. But at some point, he had the intention to go share it. So he thought of some friends he had been practicing with, remembered where they were, and set off to find them. And then when he did find them several days later, he gave them this talk on the Four Noble Truths. And it's this, uh, it's really distilling his deep awakening or deep insight into um, steps or into kind of cause and effect. Like what is somebody, what's the first thing somebody needs to understand before they can understand the second and then the third, this sort of chain of awakening. And the first is, we have to understand that the cause of our dis-ease in the world, the cause of our uneasiness in the mind and heart, stress, tension, anxiety, craving, lust, all of these agitating mind states, the cause is here. It's something, it's a way that the mind is relating or an activity this mind or heart is engaged in right here and now. And this is a, you know, it might make sense to us, but if you start to pay attention, you're going to notice that most of the time we're externalizing our problems. So we might feel anxious, and we might think that, you know, on the surface at least, that we have something to do with this anxiety or the way that we're relating. But mostly we get, we very quickly move to blaming. We even, in a sense, externalize ourselves. We blame ourselves. But almost like it's out there, like what I did yesterday, who I am. We can externalize our body. So we can externalize anything. Basically, taking it out of the present moment, objectifying it. Ah, you're the bad guy. This is the bad guy. This is what I hate. This is what needs to be fixed. This is what I feel sorry about wish it were some other way. And the thing about that objectivization of our, of like the cause, is it makes us helpless. Like if the cause is out there some way, uh, somewhere, the cause of our unhappiness or stress, it's out there, well then in a way we're off the hook. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. I have an obnoxious boss, or I have, I got bad genes and I have heart disease, or I, you know, whatever it might be. And it's like, well, that's how it is. I'm just doomed to have this particular situation. So this insight, you know, that we develop, it isn't an all at once understanding, but we develop, we learn, we discover, right? And the insight is a discovery. The mind is seeing something it wasn't seeing before. We start to discover an activity, something the mind is doing in the present moment, that is supporting the experience of dukkha. That's the word for suffering or unsatisfactoriness, dissatisfaction, stress. The mind-heart is doing something in the here and now. If the mind-heart isn't doing that, there's no stress or suffering. Now this is, this should seem provocative. If you understand this, it should sort of challenge our notions because you know, we can easily sort of say, well, you know, 
I was at the dentist last week, you know, and she was drilling in my tooth. And uh, are you trying to tell me that the stress I was feeling, the anxiety I was feeling, was something I was doing when she was <laughs> drilling into my tooth? But, uh, I mean, clearly when, you know, there are experiences that are really unpleasant, like getting our tooth drilled. But the actual birth of stress or the birth of uneasiness in the mind is the mind relating, how the mind is relating to those painful sensations coming from the drilling. The drilling and the painful sensations are one thing, and the fear and the hating it and the wanting it to be over and the wondering whether the dentist knows what she's doing. <laughs> All of these things are extra and something the mind is doing in the moment. And when we have that thought, does she know what she's doing? That thought comes with tension. It's stressful to have that thought. It hurts to have that thought. And then what the mind does is it, it in a way, it amplifies that by, it's sort of like, spinning or taking a riff off of the painful sensations of the actual drilling and kind of amplifying it with these sort of very pointed jabs. Does she know what she's doing? When is this going to be over? Why do I have cavities? And it's like it's a kind of self-torture that continues because we're not seeing clearly what's going on. So, you know, it's appropriate for us to have this question and, you know, in September we'll take some time the next few weeks to ask this initial question and then see where it leads us. Why do we, why would we want to train the mind and heart? Why do this training? Why find a time every day to sit and meditate? Why try to remember throughout the day to be more mindful, more present? with the mind-body experience. Why? It's a lot of work. Because our habits are so much to be distracted, to be carried away by this experience, lost in that experience, it takes a lot of intention, a lot of work to turn that habit around and to be more mindful. Part of the work is the formal sitting that we try to do every day or go on a retreat every once in a while to get some momentum. And part of it is just remembering uh, throughout the day to be more mindful. So we do, so the answer, I mean, my answer to that first question, you know, why do this work, is I've located the source of my stress, my uneasiness in life, the weight I feel at times in life, the burden I feel at times in life. I've located it to this activity that the mind is often engaged in here, now, in the present moment, something the mind and heart is doing in the present moment. So then we really understand better what the work we're doing. We're trying to understand the mind in order to get a better sense of this activity and the sort of causal network of that activity. Like what is supporting that activity? of stressing the mind. I mean, it's like a mental crunch. 
or burning in the heart. You know, the heart is gripping. The, the word the Buddha used, tanha, gets translated as clinging or thirsting. So it's a, the mind is grasping. It's not in a fluid relationship with things as they are. It's like uh, psychological friction. That's, that's what we get for our complicated brain. You know, we're able to create the experience of psychological friction or psychological weight. But that weight isn't being imposed on us from outside. That weight is something we're creating. And it's got to be created moment by moment. Just because we created the psychological weight five minutes ago, it won't be there unless we're recreating it right now. Mark, would you check the thermostat? I'm wondering if it's on the program. It should say, the AC should be, should say like 81 degrees. Did it switch? The ACs are up. Oh, okay. No, that's okay if it's off. What's the temperature? Right, oh, great. So it's just cooling off outside. You sure the AC's off? It feels like the AC's on. But it says off all the way to the right? Uh, yeah, hang on. Does that have a hard time seeing Oh, wait a minute. Here. Okay. Never mind, it says cool on the corner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can shut the AC off. Yeah. Okay, good, thanks. So the question we'll keep coming back to is like, why do we want to do this practice? And then we we're going to cultivate the perception that, little by little at least, we're starting to recognize the cause of stress is here. And instead of being burdened by that, actually we get empowered because now there's something we can do about it. If we're externalizing the cause of the stress in our life, we're helpless. If we see that primarily the cause of our stress is how the mind is understanding, how the mind is participating in the moment, there's something we can do about it. It's not helpless, hopeless. So let's just consider that. And it's actually of real insight. As I mentioned earlier, this is you know, not something to be disappointed about. Like, to feel this, to see this, basically, you know, in, in Buddhist circles, we call it monkey mind. Well, it's just, the, it's just the force, the momentum of neurotic, self-centered activity, our great love of our self-centered dramas. We don't even care what the dramas are. Like, we could be a bad guy in our drama or a good guy in our drama, and it actually doesn't matter. We like drama. We don't like simplicity. We don't like neutrality. We don't like peace. Let's be truthful. I mean, we choose drama. We choose agitation instead of peace. Instead of eating oatmeal, we eat spicy food. I mean, instead of, like I heard there's Cable channels, I don't have cable TV, but I hear there are cable channels that, like the camera's just on a, an aquarium of fish sort of floating around or things like that. But you know, we don't generally watch that. We watch the news, which is agitating, or we 
watch horror films, which are agitating, or intense romantic dramas, which are agitating. And when we get together with our friends, we often talk about agitating things, like bad things that happened to us today, what we're afraid of, what's wrong with the world. So we should get this tendency of our mind. This really, it's, it is our main addiction. We are addicted to drama, to agitation. And because it's so much the way, uh, you know, where our mind dwells, we're actually a little uneasy when things get still and quiet and simple and neutral. I often challenge people once, you know, sometimes people come and talk to me about their practice and as I see they're getting serious and have a real sense of the practice, I often say to them, you know what you should do is just take an afternoon off and don't do anything. Don't turn it into a meditation retreat. Don't turn it into a time to clean out your files or to do this or to do that. Just be, just practice being. Just sit on the couch, stand up and look out the window. Like don't turn sitting on the couch into an activity either. So you're not like turning this afternoon, this three hour period into something to accomplish. You're just being simple. Just letting the mind be simple in order to realize how unpleasant that can be. Now, if you're sleep deprived, you just go to sleep and you'll miss your opportunity. So if you're sleep deprived, first catch up on your sleep. And you'll notice you want to go to sleep even when you don't need sleep because the mind will want to avoid simplicity. So this is part of what this training is about. We locate the problem here, and then we get interested in the mind, the mind's addiction to agitation. And this is the first noble truth the Buddha talked about at that first talk. It's called the title of that talk, as it's recorded in what's called the Pali Canon, the discourses, the talks that were recorded in the Pali language. It's called Setting the Wheel of Dhamma in Motion. So Dhamma is just these, the teachings of the way things are. So he set it in motion because he shared what he had come to understand. And then some of the guys he was talking to, they also understood. They had insight right then listening to his talk. And then it was a big deal because what the Buddha understood at that point is that what he came to understand, the insight he had, wasn't an isolated event, but something that other people could get too. And for over 2,000 years now, this wheel, you know, these pragmatic psychological teachings, they've been rolling along generation by generation, men and women doing the practice, passing it on. And so we understand, hey, the problem is here. And the first step is to understand the problem that's right here. This is the first noble truth. There is dukkha. There is the experience. Not, not philosophically speaking, but directly speaking, there is this experience, a psychological experience of weight or stress or dissatisfaction. And to tune into it, because normally we, we try to distract ourselves or to deny it, or we're embarrassed that we suffer. We're embarrassed that we're stressed. We think we should be happy. 
and we kind of have this ideal of a competent human being would be happy. So we think that we should imitate being happy, which is just another heavy trip that we project on our, our lives. You know, the need, the expectation, agenda that to be happy. Instead of getting interested in what's in the way of happiness, this present moment feeling of weight or dissatisfaction. So right now, we can just tune in, you know, I point here, but that doesn't mean the experience of dukkha or weight is here, but maybe sometimes energetically. But like, you know, just addressing the question, how do you know right now that your mind or your heart isn't fully released, fully at ease, fully content, fully happy? What is it about the present moment, the way it is now, that is evidence that you're not fully, completely happy. Just take a few seconds and check in. And maybe you are. Maybe your understanding or your experience now leads you to think, well, no, I am completely, fully at ease and happy. And then just really tune into that. I mean, that would be a nice thing to tune into. And it can be very subtle. So like even if it feels like a pretty nice moment being here, I mean it is, it's a nice evening, we're just sitting together, talking about something, listening about something that's really wholesome, like how to be happy human beings. So you might be feeling pretty good, but even that, you know, there might be a kind of like not wanting to miss this nice experience or wanting to hold on to it or a fear that it won't be this way tomorrow when I'm in the stress of my job. So even that vulnerability to change is somewhat stressful, knowing that whatever good feeling there may be right now, that it's fragile, like it's here now, but you know maybe later when I'm older or sick or forgetful, it will be different. So we want to understand the full range of that experience of dissatisfaction. Because, you know, it's really obvious when it's obvious, right? Like, we lose somebody we love. Well, that feeling of loss and our uh, not wanting to feel the loss, all of that together, it's very obviously dukkha. Or, you know, we're getting sick and we don't want to be sick. That's clearly dukkha. We all know that experience of dukkha. But dukkha can be really subtle, just a subtle tension, a subtle inability for the mind to just be at ease, just to rest, to go to empty, to go to neutral. You know, just being restless itself, restlessness itself is a kind of dukkha. Dullness is also a kind of dukkha, just not really wanting to show up for the moment not really wanting to be connected to the body, aware of what's going on around us. You know that sort of like fog in the mind, heaviness in the mind? I'm not sure some of you are feeling that now. <laughs> it's okay. Hating it is just another layer of dukkha, right? Or thinking we shouldn't be that way is just more dukkha. So we want to get interested in the experience of dukkha because without getting interested in the experience of dukkha, there's no way to go beyond it. 
And the Buddha was very clear. You know, these teachings are so pragmatic. The reason why they're suffering, the proximate cause for suffering, is the not understanding suffering. It makes so much sense. We have this experience of dissatisfaction, of psychological weight or tension or stress, because the mind doesn't understand it. What doesn't it understand about it? It doesn't understand how it comes to be. It doesn't understand that this is a natural cause and effect, so to speak, arising. It doesn't land from our fall from outer space into our mind, and then we're feeling dissatisfaction. It is something that is being constructed or created. And so once we begin to, you know, with practice over time, gradually, better and better, more consciously, understand how our mind is over and over again constructing the experience of dissatisfaction, the mind can start making different choices, naturally. It doesn't even need to be somebody making the different choices. It's the not seeing dukkha that is the cause of dukkha. Because we don't understand dukkha, we keep misperceiving our experience. And we strike out out there into the world, you know. We hate things, we crave things, because we think doing that is going to address this pain, this weight in the heart. I mean, just think about how many times I went, you know, to the store to get chocolate or something sweet to alleviate, you know, whatever I was feeling in my heart, my mind, you know. And I'd have a temporary pleasant experience, but the whole thing would be stressful, you know, and then I reinforce the dependency on something sweet to address the feeling of inadequacy or the feeling of being overwhelmed or, you know, whatever it might be in that particular day. And then, you know, in five minutes it's over. The cookie's gone or the chocolate's gone, and there I am again, <laughs> you know, needing the next thing, well, maybe a cup of green tea. You know, maybe checking the news again. Maybe something's happened, something agitating. <laughs> and you know, we're so willing to exchange the tension, the yuckiness in our heart for something else that's agitating. It's like consciously choosing to be agitated somehow isn't as afflictive, afflicting as the agitating we haven't chosen, the agitation we haven't chosen, you know? So we like, stimulate ourselves this way or that way, provoke ourselves this way or that way, so we don't feel what's really going on. So we start with this first insight that just a deepening recognition, somehow how my mind is relating, participating in the moment. So not theoretically, not philosophically generally, but moment by moment, so right now the way my mind is participating interacting, understanding, relating to things, that is relevant because it's the cause, it's the location of suffering. And so then we get interested in suffering. Without um, understanding dukkha, there's no going beyond dukkha. So one of the things we understand with the experience of dukkha is that it arises due to attachment. 
when Jack Kornfield showed up at the monastery, he's a well-known Vipassana insight meditation teacher and author. And he, uh, after the Peace Corps in Thailand, he stayed and became a monk and then eventually found his way to Ajahn Chah's monastery in northeast Thailand. Ajahn Chah was a very well-known Buddhist monk and teacher at the time in the 60s. And when he first showed up, sort of interesting, Ajahn Chah said to him, um, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. Jack Kornfeld said, what do you mean? <laughs> and, and then he said, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering you run from, which follows you everywhere, right? And we know that. We should know this experience. This, he's pointing to what is typical for human beings. The suffering that we run from and follows us everywhere. Or, and this is the other choice, the suffering that you turn toward, you face, and thereby, he says, and thereby find the liberation that the Buddha taught for us all. So there's a turning toward the experience. So when we sit and compose the mind and body, calm the mind, it's not the end. The goal of meditation isn't just calm. As beautiful as that experience can be at times, when the mind gets really tranquil, the body tension falls away to some degree, and there can be a really beautiful state of peace, bliss even, really profound kind of bliss at times for some people. But believe it or not, as nice as those experiences can be, that's not really what the path is all about. It's just a very useful healing that supports what the practice is really about, which is understanding dukkha and the cause of dukkha. Once we understand the cause of dukkha, there can be a letting go of the cause of dukkha, an abandoning of the cause of dukkha, which leads to the cessation of dukkha, a moment when there is no mental suffering. And then that sets up a deeper understanding of how to live our life. And this is the Buddha's first teaching, his first talk, his first Dharma talk he gave to a set of a few friends several weeks after his deep insight. He taught that there is a cause, I mean, there, uh, there is dukkha, there is this psychological experience of stress or dissatisfaction. It's relevant. It should be understood. The heart should orient around it, not run from it. Should look at it. There's something to be understood here. There's something that we have been missing for a long, long time in the experience of dissatisfaction, stress, loss, craving, grasping. And what we see is, oh my god, there's a cause. Without identification or attachment, there is no suffering. There is no weight. When there's attachment, there's always weight. When there's no attachment or identification, there's no weight. Now, you hear this, but this is something for each of us to deeply check out. This is a relevant place for investigation. Is this actually true in your lived experience? So notice, like when you're feeling really great, no weight, feeling really buoyant and happy and connected, alive, 
look, is there any identification or attachment going on? And if you do discover some, see if your sense of happiness increases when, if you're, if you're able, when you abandon them. And then on the other end, whenever you feel any kind of psychological weight, stress, dissatisfaction, then look, is the mind identified or attached to something? And then notice if you can see that present moment correlation. This, when there is this, there's that. Without this, there's no that. You know, when there's attachment, there's stress in the mind. There's weight, psychological dissatisfaction. When there's not this, there's not that. When there's this, this comes to be. With the arising of this, this arises. So we're seeing that. That's all actually we have to do. We don't have to shake off the attachment. We don't have to be afraid of the attachment. All we have to do is make the link between the attachment. This is an activity the mind is doing. Attachment or identification, we should put an ING. It should be attaching, clinging, identifying, right? Because it's a present moment activity. When we see the link between that and the, ex and the experience of psychological weight, it just falls away. No human mind consciously, in awareness, continues this self-torture. It only happens because the link isn't being seen. It's like, uh, you know, when you're holding a hot pan and you know you're holding a hot pan, you let go. There doesn't need to be a mark who somehow discerns, you know, this thing's burning my hand. I should let go. We just let go. And that's exactly what happens. And a number of you have been practicing for a while. You know this experience. It's like the mind is there with the breath or somewhat present. And some mental habit creeps into the present moment. And you start to worry. You start to be anxious about something. The mind starts to complain about somebody. Worry about the future. Something like that. Feel bad about the past. And then, in a sense, it's like mindfulness leaps on that activity. Ah, and you, it's like it pops. Now, in the beginning, we think we do the popping. But the more you do the practice, you realize nobody did that popping. Nobody let go of that activity. The letting go of that activity was the natural, spontaneous, spontaneous in the sense of just arising, just right out of the activity of seeing it is it's the seeing it clearly that caused it to fall away. So mindfulness is enough. It's not like we're mindful in order to know what our work is. Okay, then I'll go in there and stop myself from thinking about things. We just have to see the link between this mental activity, thinking about things in this way, from this perspective, and dukkha, and it falls apart like a house of cards. This is another insight. This is a more subtle, profound insight. Because when the mind begins to see this, this is really the third noble truth, the second and third noble truth. The first is there is dukkha. The second, it has a cause. The third is seeing the ending of it. As a moment-to-moment -moment experience, a psychological experience, we see this moment there's a sense of dissatisfaction or weight or stress. The next mind moment is gone. When we see that evaporation of stress, 
It's like a, a real shot of empowerment. It's like a sense of confidence in the heart or mind to, in a sense, rectify its situation in life. It's not even personal in a way, but there's a sense that the ship can correct itself. You know, having been off, like living a life or leading a life where I'm constantly bumping into stress and dissatisfaction and anxiety, that if I just stick with this path of being more mindful, and in particular, mindful of dukkha and its cause, it will evaporate. It will become less and less a habit in the mind. So I want to leave it here so we have some time tonight. And we'll keep this topic going for several weeks, probably, probably through the month of September. But it'd be nice to hear from people. I'm sure some of this probably you recognize in your own experience. So it'd be nice to share from that what you've learned, what's difficult, and of course, any questions that you have about what I've said or about the practice. So what comes to mind? And please say your name, too, if you speak up. Yeah, Anne. Um, I really appreciated that talk. Thank you. And I'm wondering if you could just say more about what you mean by identifying. When you say you notice yourself attaching or identifying. I don't, I don't. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say a few things about it, but it really needs to be an insight, meaning we have to not only see the experience of dissatisfaction in the mind, we have to, it's a little bit like tracing back. The mind is becoming sensitive to what comes before the stress, what comes before the weight. And that's the attachment. It's like uh, the identification or attachment is, is the recognition that the mind is experiencing the moment with a particular attitude or a particular point of view, perspective. And it's that perspective that leads to the kind of friction, the tightening up. And that particular perspective, you know, you could call it taking experience personally. So identification means that it's not just that we're feeling sensations in the body or hearing sounds or seeing things, but that experience of seeing, hearing, feeling is translated. The mind is translating it into an understanding that involves me and you, good and bad, this and that. So there's a whole world view going on. And this is, this is the attachment. The attachment or the identification is really the glue that holds our dramas together, our stories about things together. We can't have stories without attachment. So it's sort of interesting, like, uh, or we can't have stories with any legs. You know, I could have the story, oh, there's Anne sitting over there. But it would sort of, as it arises in the mind, it's already sort of falling away. So I can perceive, I can recognize things, I can recognize, oh, I'm at common ground giving a talk. So, I mean, I'm speculating like what a fully enlightened mind would be like. But my sense is, it's not so much that they don't have stories, but without the identification and attachment operating in the mind, the stories don't really have much weight 
or substance. They arise and then they very quickly evaporate out of the mind. And if it needs to come up again, the, the story, the thought, the perception will come up again. But what happens for us more ordinary human beings is we have a perception, a thought, or an idea about what's going on. And because of the force or this process of identifying, it's like the mind doesn't want that story to go away. So it, it gets, in a way, addicted to retelling itself the same story, maybe with a little twist here, a little twist there. So it's evolving. It's not kind of like a complete replication of the previous mind moment story. But it's got some stickiness to it. The mind won't let go of it. It's like it's got to it's got to keep going back there. Why did she say that to me? I wonder what I did to make her so angry. And it's like the mind, in a sense, is chewing. That stickiness is what we call attachment or identification. Yeah, other, other thoughts? Yeah, Damon. Yeah, well, I, um, the last few days I've been kind of in a place where I've been lucky enough to see some of the stress moments peaking and then see afterwards how manufactured it was or like how it was really created out of a habit. Like I would see something that would trigger a thought and then I, well, what, what if that happens to me? And get really stressed out and then see later that it was totally unnecessary. Or it, there, it, it was like a fear reaction to something that I identified with that wasn't about really what's in this moment now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like it's a lot of things of like fear of what will the future be like or fear of disappointing people, just similar patterns throughout my habits of my mind. But I'm, I feel like I'm at this, and maybe it's because I'm not, just not practicing enough, but I'm, I just feel like I'm seeing it pretty, pretty well or better than ever, but I'm not able to, like I, I, I see it and then I still feel really identified and attached and I feel like I have to escape and I, it's like I forget that there's another refuge besides, like I I rented this comedy and then I got really stressed out (laughs) because there are all these stressful things happening to the people and then because I couldn't sleep because of, you know what I mean? I just feel like I'm seeing the pain of it but not able to tap into that calm place yeah. of, well, okay, everything is really okay right now. But it's somewhere in my mind, I'm like, no, no, but, 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 you know. Right, but see, that feeling, but, 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 is basically saying things aren't okay right now. Yeah. So you might need to start more there, like, objectively, you might be able to say things are going pretty well in my life. But, but in a more truthful way, you have to trust what you're feeling. Doesn't mean it just means there's anxiety, you know. And it's not about whether there should be anxiety or not. But when our heart is uneasy, then our heart is uneasy, whether it should be or shouldn't be. It's just uneasy, and we have to really start there, because otherwise we're sort of setting in motion 
judgment and kind of different kinds of control mechanisms which don't work. So often, you know, our first step in practice is to understand how much neurotic activity there is, like being anxious, for example. I mean neurotic in the sense that that we're, we feel compelled to do something even though we know there's nothing that needs to be done. What really needs to be done, so to speak, is to make room for this uneasiness to be the way that it is. There's so much wisdom and release just in that, just in learning to tolerate and to get more and more comfortable with that uneasiness that comes up for us a lot of the time. And uh, now when we do that, even before we have any real deep insight, we'll have the release of not reacting to it. Because so much of our suffering in life is running from the ordinary insecurity that just comes with being a human being. I mean, we would have so much release, so much freedom, just in being able to accept the ordinary insecurity. We live in an insecure world. You know, nobody here is in control of their body, their mind, let alone their external life situation. We're just not in control of it all. So on this level, feeling like a separate human being, Insecurity is an appropriate emotion to have. There's nothing wrong with being insecure. There's nothing wrong with feeling anxious. There's nothing wrong with having desire or craving. But what we want to look and see is like, how can this, how can I relate? How can I understand this experience that alleviates tension, weight that can be alleviated? So it's like learning to live as a human being in this insecure world, to be free in that experience, not to make it more than what it is. And we make it more than what it is by running from it, by the unwillingness to feel what it's like to be a human being, to have a body we're not in control of. I mean, here we've got this vessel we live in, or whatever, however you want to refer to it, but we're not in control of it. I mean, that's, uh, some of you know Kay Christensen, a longtime leader at the center. She was a board member for six years, just finished her second term on the board, our treasurer through the whole process of buying and renovating the building. And uh, someone who takes care of herself on all levels, runs every day, meditates all the time, longtime practitioner. And she had a, a heart blockage or just the conductivity I guess in one of her valves just stopped working when she was on vacation and she's doing better today um, but uh, just been a real uh, as you can imagine a real kind of challenge so she had a pacemaker put in in Hawaii where she was with her husband but you know this is just how it is her and her family there's a lot of heart disease so even though she's relatively young for this kind of thing and really taking care of herself for a long time Still, something like this can happen when she was jogging on the beach in Hawaii. So this is just the way it is for us. You know, each of us in our own particular way. And we don't know what's around any of our corners. So it's appropriate to be a little uneasy, but 
just because there's insecurity doesn't mean the, the mind, the psychology of the mind, needs to get tied up in knots about it. That's completely non-functional. It doesn't help to be anxious or afraid of the insecurity. So we work with it. We have to develop enough calm, enough confidence to keep looking at it instead of trying to fix it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Amen. Yeah, Liz. Okay. I um, think I have an experience that correlates to what you're talking about. I have a friend, an old friend, who over the last, we, we're like sisters and we've known each other a long time. We talk every few days. And she's had significant, she's in her 80s, she's had significant health challenges this year. And you know, I just not, you know, I've not wanted to talk to her. I've been just very, you know, it's like I'm all of a sudden so irritated with her and, you know, what she thinks and who she is and everything. It's like, you know, very strong feelings. And, you know, so I recognize that I don't like that she's, you know, having health issues. But also it's me looking at life in yeah. general of being, you know, and I had a very insightful dream this week. I was in the kitchen of the house that I grew up in, and my parents were there. And there were two dogs there, you know, two great dogs that I had that had both passed on, and my parents have both passed on too. But I was um, kind of a younger child in the dream, I think. But anyway, the idea was that I was, you know, Mom and Dad were going to have to tell me that you know I'm I was going to I'm going to die. And um, but in the dream they were going to take care of me. They were going to be there for me. And you know it wasn't like I had strong feelings like oh my God I'm going to you know I didn't nothing like that. It was just kind of a insight. And um, you know and so it was a very valuable dream it was like you know I realized it was kind of like accepting the inevitable in one sense and um, you know and now I'm just now I'm like a parent to my friend you know uh -huh. I'm caring about what she's going through and so it just this you know like huge change and um, I really don't think I'm gonna die immediately I mean I'm physically active and I'm you know, I'm very at ease in my body. As a matter of fact, I'm really enjoying, you know, being in my body. That's what makes sense. I don't know, but you know, in other words, I can work. I can be physically active and feel very good. So anyway, um, but it was very insightful, and it had a huge kind yeah. of a, a shift in my thinking and in my, my view in life. I guess. Yeah, it's it's exactly. No, no, I know, but but see, but what what you shared, Liz, is so useful because that's exactly what it is like. And I discover this all the time with my wife. It's like what really, whenever we're irritated, whatever it is that's irritating you, just probably it's something you're afraid of in your own life, in your own being, maybe. And so to 
find a way to make peace with that can really help your relationship. I've seen it so much of just getting irritated and critical around my wife, Wynne, when what really was going on is like my own fear of chaos or my own fear of uh, not trying hard enough or whatever it might be and uh, seeing it in somebody else but then reacting to it. So her mortality, your mortality, and just making that connection and how the mind through your practice, formal and informal, understood, came to an understanding that this, that running from insecurity, running from mortality, isn't helpful. It's stressful to run from it. Taking a step toward acceptance and understanding is a real relief, leads to peace. Yeah, and John, you get the last word. The last comment that relates to my question on my mind for a while. That is, we, we don't have is there a distinction to be drawn between good attachments and bad attachments? Mm -hmm. Developmental psychologists think that severe attachment is the foundation for love and hope and energy and all kinds of things we would value. So it doesn't seem to me we can we want to say that all attachment is bad. To say that it's almost like an argument for promiscuity and fidelity and, and flightiness and <laughs> so on. So, uh, how do we think about yeah. the, the kind of sticky attachment that you're clearly talking about on the one hand, and, mm -hmm. and other kinds of attachments like parents who give us, whether they come in dreams or we, or in person, give us this kind of sense of faith and hope and allow us to kind of open up to see what I mean? Yeah. So with attachment, we're we're talking about a like you, you suggested a stickiness in the mind. And see, that's exactly the kind of stickiness that does lead to infidelity, right? It's like we see somebody and the mind gets sticky and wants to go there. And then see somebody else and the mind gets sticky and wants to go there. So uh, I think that what you're really asking is like, a, it's really like a clarification of what attachment is. Because attachment isn't about being skillful. Like, it's skillful for kids to recognize their caregiver and kind of hone in. I mean, basically, like, lock in, know that face, you know, who know who's safe, who's not safe, and, you know, follow that person around. You know, like they, and more, like birds, you know, they imprint. Whoever they see after a few, when they're up and moving around, they take, they kind of take a photo, photo of it, and then that's it. You know, that's who they follow, no matter what it is. And, uh, so it's just, it's just skillful. But if the mind of a child has that attachment and then perseverates around it, that's not skillful. You know, worries about the, that, that kind of relationship with their primary caregiver. So the attachment and identification, it's an activity. It isn't like a, it isn't sort of a relationship, but it's an extra activity moment by moment that's unproductive, not functional, and stressful. And because it's not functional and stressful, it distorts the mind. So the mind is not seeing or experiencing clearly what's going on. So it continues to make mistakes in terms of how it's relating. Like, for example, if a, if a child did do that extra thing, you know, they have a, 
a parent who's really there. But let's say genetically, they've just got a lot of juice, a lot of energy. And so the child is just anxious, you know. And so as the child gets, you know, gets some language, they start having, and the parent, you know, maybe gets sick and has to go to the hospital. And so it triggers some anxiety that this, the, the child perseverates around. They're always thinking, oh, maybe mom's going to go away again, you know, and thinking about this and kind of whipping up dramas that then, that then frighten the child. You know, they imagine, like when we imagine something, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's frightening. Our imagination is kind of uh, like reality. And so that, that kind of attachment and that kind of mental activity would be unskillful. So it's like the extra piece that makes it unskillful, not the sort of knowing what's safe and what's not safe. That's not unskillful. That's just, you know, we call that sort of basic wisdom, cause and effect. When I'm around this person, she feeds me, she cuddles me, you know, she coo-coos me or whatever. <laughs> and I like that, you know, and I feel... And so just making that correlation and... Uh, but it's that, does the mind need to do something more than just make that correlation? Yeah. But we have to let it go. But we'll pick it up and please bring back your experiences next week. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together. And again, appreciating these ancient practical teachings and being inspired to do our best to set them in motion in our lives. It's a really good way to take care of ourselves and even more, a really good way to take care of each other. The more we cultivate mindfulness, understanding, the more love and wisdom that is expressed in the world. So thanks everyone for coming.